Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank calling in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the relief rally. Stocks are higher for the second day, and the major indices are on track for weekly gains. We are debating the best moves you can make right now with the Investment Committee, and they're joining me for the hour. That is Stephanie Link, Sarat Sethi, Joe Terranova, and the birthday boy, Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's get to the market. Stocks there, modestly higher. Following a cautious open, the Dow Jones is up triple digits. The S&P 500 is about 1% away from an all-time intraday high. And it's with that set up, this landscape that we begin this conversation with the investment committee. So I think the first question we all have to ask ourselves, after what we saw on Monday, then what we saw yesterday, is this bounce the real deal? And since it's your birthday, I'm going to start with you, Pete and Jerry. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. I will tell you this. Here's the interesting part. And I was talking with one of the producers, Patty, before we came on. And I was explaining that the interesting part of Monday was everything looked terrible, right? Markets are getting absolutely smashed. They're getting hit to the downside, both the Nasdaq and, and well, all three, the Nasdaq, the S&P and the Dow all get down significantly to the downside. But the interesting part was on the option side of things, we were seeing buyers. And as a matter of fact, we did not see the kind of spike in the volatility that I think a lot of people were expecting us to see. We did have a little bit of a spike, didn't last very long, pulled back almost immediately, and volatility was back to normal, Frank. So the interesting part was we were seeing buyers in the airline area. We've seen it in cruise ships. We were seeing it in hotels. We were seeing it in casinos all getting bought on Monday as things were going down. So it does reflect, I think, at least sort of uh, what, pe what people are looking for. And now all of a sudden, what did we see? A big bounce yesterday, big bounce today. Very nice to see that we're moving back up to the upside. And we are not that far away from these highs. You look at the volatility index, we're back below 20, Frank, which is, I think, stunning how quickly we have pulled back. So I think the combination of the volatility not spiking to the levels that people were expecting and then pulling back, and now today going under 20, I think that says a lot about what people are thinking right now and the risk reward that people are still looking at despite the fact that we're basically pressed right up against those highs. You know, Pete's talking about volatility. December's normally the calmest month, month for the markets. This year, it's been the most volatile according to the bespoke investment group. Stephanie, I want to turn things over to you. Um, big meeting at the White House today talking about supply chain. We're going to touch on that later. But the FedEx CEO, Fred Smith, he says all the president's presidents, presidents are arriving on time. He's talking to the president. He says he <laughs> believes all the presidents are going to arrive on time. A lot of that's because a lot of us have shopped early. Is there a chance that this Santa Claus rally, is that arriving a little bit early like a lot of our holiday gifts? And we're seeing the beginning of it now instead of on Monday when we normally would see it. 
Well, I think between now and the end of the year, seasonally, it's a good time for the markets. And so I would bet odds that we are higher between now and then. I even think first quarter usually is more kind of what you say, risk on, more cyclicals tend to outperform because everybody is so optimistic. Uh, we'll have to see what Omicron does to growth. And uh, the other uncertainty is the Fed policy changes, but we have a little bit of time on that. Um, if, if Omicron kind of is as quick in terms of a resolution as it is, it's, as it appears in South Africa, then we're probably going to do just fine and we can continue to grow above trend. But it is something to watch. In the meantime, Frank, we have some pretty good economic data. We have a lot of liquidity still in the system. We have a lot of momentum in the economy. And, uh, and, and I was really surprised consumer confidence numbers today so incredibly strong. And we had revisions from last month. Um, we also, by the way, had high price deflator numbers, 6% year over year growth. So have above average growth, have above average inflation. Let's see what Omicron does. But I do think, again, the liquidity and the moment momentum and the pent up demand is very powerful. As Pete said, the reopening names on Monday outperformed absolute and relative and rates on Monday actually inched higher. So I think that's still where you want to be. I think cyclicals are still where you want to be. I still have plenty of technology. I lean on the cyclical side of technology. Let's see and assess what happens in the first part of the year in terms of, again, the Omicron and also the Fed and how aggressive they will be. Sarat, over to you. Are you seeing that bounce as being real? Are you putting your money into cyclicals? You know, I agree with Stephanie. I think what you're seeing here, this is all supply chain issues. Demand has not dropped. And I think the market is looking through that to say, hey, if we, you know, if this new variant is not as bad as Stephanie said, and, you know, we know what the Fed has telegraphed now, right? So that we understand that, yes, when they do things, maybe the market reacts. But this to me is much more, you know, is demand going to be there? Right now we have all indications that demand is going to be there. Can the consumer kind of go, you know, get through this? Will corporations get through this? Corporations are still buying back shares. I think, you know, the, the, the credit markets are still strong. So to me, there's no reason for this rally to kind of break apart. I don't know how much stronger we get in once we start really discounting the next couple of quarters and how fast growth's going to be as soon as we start absorbing some of these higher costs. But I think that's why you got to look at, you know, specific sectors and companies. I mean, cyclicals, industrials, financials, even the, you know, parts of energy. That's where you're going to get pricing. That's where you're going to get revenue growth and earnings growth. So, sir, I want to push back on you just for a second. You're saying that the demand there from the consumer remains consistent. All the problems are supply chain issues. Well, a lot of that inventory is in right now. We see the consumer discretionary sector down 2% this month, worst performing sector this month, today up 1.5%. What does that mean? Do investors think those supply chain issues have, have been resolved or are they just significantly alleviated? I think inv uh, investors have figured out that the supply chain costs are going to be there. And as long as there is enough demand for what we're going to produce, and it doesn't look like we're going to get these huge inventory gluts because things are still taking time to produce. So consumer discretionary ran quite a bit before. And then again, you got to look at stock specifics in there and say, okay, what am I, you know, what am I looking for in terms of, you know, is it autos? Autos, the demand is so high they can't produce enough products, or is it kind of like the Amazon where they can't even get enough products shipped out? So I think you got to go down specific, and some of these sectors have already reflected this. And what I'm trying to say is when I look at financials, industrials, energy, some of the areas that I think earnings growth is going to be much better than what people forecast. Joe, over to you. Well, I think the, the consistency 
uh, has been reflected in the resilience of the market, Frank. Uh, just, just think about that. That's the constant throughout the year. The market absorbs some form of a macro headwind, some form of perceived negative news. It wobbles, it corrects, it maybe goes down and uh, challenges some of the technical moving averages like it did on Monday. By the way, held the 100-day moving average at 45.30 perfectly, and subsequent to that, it rebounds. So I think investors are always being kind of challenged that this is the moment where they want to be selling and raising cash levels. Uh, I, I agree with the panel. I don't think that's the right strategy. It's not one that I've advocated. I think more importantly, what you're witnessing with a little bit of elevated volatility relative to historics in the month of December is that there's a repositioning though that's going on. And I think the repositioning is a correct one. I think the type of holding that investors want to have as we move into 2022 is more qualitative in nature. It's more where we're focusing on the strength of a balance sheet, what the capital allocation strategy might be, what the operating margin ultimately is, and what the valuation is, because I think you have to have a degree of respect towards that, in particular if you're talking about a lot of the supply chain costs. So I think that's the trade-off right now. I think the way to look at it as we move into 2022 is trade-off into a higher quality holding. All right. Well, let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli with much more on the market action. Mike, happy holidays. Thanks for being here. You as well, Frank. Yeah, I mean, in terms of just evaluating the character of this bounce and whether it's something uh, that you really want to buy into, I think yesterday went a, a good distance to saying that uh, it, the market responded as you might want to see it at those levels. What I mean by that is we've been in about a two-month trading range here, uh, and we've not sort of challenged the lower end of it. So you have a lot of these negative headlines. As, as Joe was saying, the market kind of navigated them, at least to this point. Very broad rally yesterday, and it was a combination of some of the most beat down, you know, formerly hot speculative growth stocks that really have gotten swamped over the last several weeks and also cyclicals that seem to respond to an economic recovery theme. Those things working together. In fact, one of the biggest uh, determinants of whether your stock did great and led the way this uh, past couple of days was, was it down the most year to date? So on some level, that's just kind of, you know, a reflex bounce, mean reversion. Maybe that doesn't continue. But in general, the fact that the overall market has been able to uh, stay within this range and within shouting distance of the all-time highs, I think it's a net positive. Now, if your bull case is, hey, this Omicron thing isn't as negative as we thought it was going to be, and that is, of course, a positive, well, the S&P is basically where it was before the world ever heard of Omicron. So it's not as if the market's at a deep discount overall relative to the pre-variant uh, days before Thanksgiving. So I think you still have to have some kind of a thesis that says, Top line growth is going to be great next year. Credit markets remain pretty solid. They softened up a little bit, but they're not really raising any alarms. And, you know, uh, Pete was mentioning volatility index suggests that, you know, there's not as much stress out there in portfolio land and people needing to sell. So much of that kind of reduction of risk happened in the past few weeks. I think that you have a cleaner setup with lower expectations among most investors. That tends to be, you know, a formula for decent stability. One final question I would have is, this market's failed a few times at the top end of this range, right above 4,700 on the S&P. So are you going to get people to have that fear of missing out before we get through that? Or is that going to act as at least initial, initially a bit of a friction point toward year end? Mike, you said one final question. We actually have a couple for you. I know Stephanie has one. I have <laughs> one for you first. Um, the news came out from the WHO on Monday that the Omicron cases are basically doubling every one and a half to three days. Are you surprised to see a bounce after news like that? Not so much, mostly because the market 
now has this this pattern recognition, which is we know the shape of these spikes and the, the, the more steep Probably the brief, more brief it's going to be. Obviously, the, every bit of incremental news, we don't know everything about this, obviously, but every bit of incremental news is severity and the overall health care burden might not be as, uh, as bad as, as prior variants as Delta. And therefore, markets seen this, these reopening rallies that seem counterintuitive when they were happening, just as um, cases were peaking maybe three or four times before this. So I think that, that for that reason, it's not terribly surprising. Uh, and also, you have to consider uh, what stocks did leading up to this week, which was mostly they were on their, on their heels. All right, Stephanie, I know you have a question as well. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Mike, um, how concerned are you about peak margins? We've seen peak growth, we know that, but still elevated growth. We've seen peak inflation, but probably still elevated inflation. Are you talking to people that are worried about, and are you worried about, peak margins? And, you know, given that we have maybe some supply chain fixes coming, right? We definitely will at the end of next year. Companies have pricing power, but they also are dealing with higher wages and commodity costs. So where do you land on the margin front? Uh, yeah, I mean, Steph, I think there's obviously there's implicit risk in, in the margin story just because the 2022 consensus estimates seem to project maintenance of, of roughly current margins. In other words, they're not pricing in uh, much, much of a squeeze. On the other hand, hasn't that been just a generally losing trade to say, oh, margins got to compress, they have <laughs> to mean revert? And I think a lot of the reason that that hasn't necessarily panned out in recent years is the composition of the S&P 500 earnings uh, has become more dominated by companies with, you know, per, you know very well defended uh, and high profit margins. So I think it's fair to worry about that. It's fair to say maybe we're in for a year. Where we're not going to have the across the board earnings beats that we got used to in the last few quarters. Naturally, there's no way that could continue. Final thing on that score, though, is we still have super high nominal GDP growth. Not the kind we're used to, you know, in, in the prior cycle, where it was like oh, 2% GDP, maybe 1.5%, 2% uh, inflation. We're talking double digits right now going into 2022. That probably doesn't persist, but, it, you know, huge, super high revenue growth kind of makes up for some, some margin squeeze, I expect, along the way. All right, Mike, thanks a lot for joining us. We now want to go, turn our attention over to some breaking news. Meg Terrell with the very latest with some breaking news from Pfizer. Hey there, Meg. Hey, Frank, the FDA has given emergency use authorization to Pfizer's COVID antiviral pill Paxlovid. Uh, this is the first pill that is cleared for use for COVID-19 in the U.S. in this kind of setting where it's designed to be given early after diagnosis within five days of symptoms. Uh, and it is specifically indicated for people, both adults and kids 12 and older, who are at high risk of progressing to severe disease from COVID. Remember, in clinical trials, this showed it was able to reduce the hospitalization and death risk when given early by 89%. Uh, so this could make a huge difference here in this pandemic. Pfizer CEO uh, saying in a statement, this breakthrough therapy, which has been shown to significantly reduce hospitalizations and deaths and can be taken at home, will change the way we treat COVID-19 and hopefully help reduce some of the significant pressures facing our healthcare and hospital systems. Uh, the company also noting it's increased its uh, forecast for how much it can make of this drug next year to 120 million courses. That's up from its previous forecast of 80 million. By the end of this year, though, guys, supply is still going to be pretty short. Uh, overall, worldwide, 180,000 treatment courses available. Uh, Pfizer says expects tens of thousands of packs of these by the end of 2021 in the U.S. 
getting up to hundreds of thousands by the start of 2022. So guys, quite a big move here uh, from the FDA. Uh, a lot of people were waiting for this one. Frank? Meg Terrell with the very latest. Thank you, Meg. Uh, turn it over to you, Pete. I know you own Pfizer. Shares up a half a percent on that news. We're going to continue to watch them. Mm. What's your take on this news? Uh, uh, it sounds like a 50% increase in the ability to, pr to produce those antiviral drugs. Pete, I might be having some, some technical difficulties. Uh, just let's stick with healthcare just for a second. Frank. Oh, there we go. Frank on... on, on. Frank, it's Joe on Pfizer. I could help you out with that yeah, one Joe, for sure. Yeah, Joe, help me out with that one. Um, I, 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 I don't see how this is not uh, overwhelmingly positive. And, and I think just overall as a society, maybe there was a degree of complacency that we were moving very quickly from a pandemic environment to an endemic environment and, you know, that this was the end of COVID. We have absorbed a lot of negative news with Omicron over the last couple of weeks, but we have the resources, we have the tools, we ultimately will have the therapeutics uh, that will allow us to persevere through this. So I think this is a positive. I could tell you that the end of October, Pfizer was added down in the mid 40s uh, to the uh, quality momentum index and the Joe T ETF that tracks it, very happy to own it. And I think the solution looking forward for society is going to really come from this dramatic pivot as it relates to sentiment towards healthcare, I mean, Frank, think about it. Right. We need healthcare. We need biopharma. We need biotechnology. And I think investors are underinvested in healthcare overall. All right, Pfizer shares up almost a percent since that news came out. Pete, looks like you're back. I thought you were knocking off early for your birthday. Um, you own Pfizer. <laughs> What's your take on that news? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been a really long-term hold. It's, I own it not just because of this, uh, what we've been dealing with over the last couple of years, Frank. It's just, I think it's a really quality company. When you look at their free cash flow, you look at all the different things in their balance sheet, and Steph can speak to that as well. It's just an absolute home run. But obviously, given the circumstances that we are dealing with right now and what they've been able to come up with, I think this is huge. And if you go back and you look at the, at the end of November into December, we have had nothing but unusual option activity looking for more upside, including just yesterday where they were buying 62 strike calls. They continue to come after this stock in a positive way, and it's been moving to the upside. Joe pointed out a lot of the different things that make a lot of sense as far as what they're going to be able to do and how they're going to be able to do it. But the other thing is this. They need to be able to produce even more and more and more, and I think that's something they obviously will work very hard on to try to diligently get themselves into a position to even put more out there for people. But this combined with everything else that Pfizer brings to the table, I think is exactly why. I was looking when they asked us about, hey, second half of the year, what are you looking at? Healthcare. That was exactly the area that I focused on because I felt like as we were going through this pandemic, we we're going to have some ups and downs. We're going to have different variants along the way, of course. And that's why I think the healthcare industry has a lot of room to the upside. And look, take a look at what Pfizer has done over the last few months. It's been a very explosive move for a stock that normally does not make these kind of moves. And a lot more option activity has been flowing into this name as well. I'm going to hold on to this name. It's not overpriced just because it's gone up as much as it has. I think this is one of these names that absolutely has a lot more room to the upside. So, Pete, very bullish on Pfizer, but you actually just sold J&J. &J. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. And here's my rationale there. So I own Merck. I own Pfizer. I own J&J. &J. The reason I sold J&J &J has nothing to do with the fact that J&J &J, um, 
You know, it does fine. Its performance, however, is very lackluster. And within that performance being so lackluster, it's also very, very tight range. And because of that, as you guys all know, when I own stocks, I always sell calls against my stocks. J&J has been a very difficult stock to be able to sell options against because, quite frankly, the implied volatility there is even lower than where we are looking at on the VIX. We're talking about, well, at least it was, about a 20 implied volatility. I'm getting close to a 40 implied volatility every single week that I sell against Pfizer. I'm getting about a 35 implied volatility in Merck. I'm not getting that here, so I'm not getting performance from the stock, and I can't get the performance that I'd like to get with the option. So I deter determined, why not sell this stock now, and then I'll focus on some other stocks in the future. So, Sarah, turn it over to you. You're also in on healthcare. You own Merck. You also own J&J, &J, and you actually disagree with Pete. I do, but I mean, you know, Pete and I are looking at a different directions. I'm not looking at volatility. I'm looking at a core holding of a stock that could be the calm in, in a volatile period going forward. We actually believe if you break up J&J, &J, and they are going to be breaking up into two different groups, <clears throat> two different, uh, uh, you know, companies, the upside in J&J &J is, look, you're going to get 7 to 8% earnings growth and a 2 to 3% dividend. I will take that any day on a low volatility, as Pete said, and a company that I think, you know, is, 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 is so many things in it right now that because of COVID, you haven't seen any of the upside in the orthopedics division. Uh, there are a lot of other drugs that really haven't come out because people are very focused, especially in hospitals and doctors. So it, it is a very good company. It's a very strong balance sheet. It's a growing dividend. Uh, you know, and I like that one. And then the other one I also like in there, uh, which you didn't mention, is Bristol. Bristol's trading at eight times earnings. You know, you're not um, the only so one. So I think healthcare, to, you know, to, uh, to Joe's point and Pete's point, is I want to be in healthcare, and these are some of the companies that I want to own. They haven't done well, and, and I think they've got a lot of promise for the future. Sarah, sorry to cut you off. I was going to say you're not the only one. Stephanie, you yeah. actually just bought Bristol-Myers. Yeah, and for that very reason, it's flat year-to-date. It trades at 8.3 times earnings. It gets you a 3.5% dividend yield. They just increased the buyback by $15 billion. That's 12% of their market cap. They have an okay pipeline, Frank. I'm not going to try and sell you on it. But I do think there still are some cell gene synergies that are underappreciated. And we're going to get a lot of approvals in the beginning of 2022. So I, I like it because I think the risk reward is really appealing. And I like the valuation and, and the dividend yield. And on J&J, and &J, by the way, you know, I understand why Pete's selling it. Um, I own it. I love, I love the fact that they're separating the company up. Um, it's going to take some time, but they have a great pharmaceutical franchise that I think is so underappreciated. And they recently had an analyst day and they're talking about a 5% CAGR for the next five, uh, five years in their pharma business. They have 14 mid to late uh, cycle assets worth, they think, over time, a billion dollars each. So I think it's underappreciated. Yeah, it's kind of boring, but I kind of like some boring to offset some of my cyclical exposure, too. All right, switching gears a bit. We're going to turn in, in Frank. No, go ahead, Sarat. Sorry to cut you off. I, I just want to add to what Stephanie's saying. So when you're an investor, the time to get into a Bristol and a J&J &J is when nobody really wants it. And a lot of the money's flowing into some of the hotter <laughs> stocks. So if you're patient and you're getting a good dividend and a strong balance sheet, this is kind of where you make the money. And it, it might not be the next quarter, but, you know, we'll, I, and if I'm not speaking for Stephanie, but I'm looking, you know, a year or two years out where you get any type of multiple expansion yeah. and you get any of these drugs that actually hit, you're going to do well. Yeah, speaking of drugs actually hitting off, uh, Pfizer Frank, shares. If I could, up. real quick. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Real quick, AbbVie breaking out. I know it's a name that Stephanie loves. Don't forget about managed care. 
uh, whether it's United Healthcare or Anthem and Surratt, I don't know how you dare to disagree with Pete on his birthday. Come on, you don't. Do that. <laughs> I know it's a tough thing to do. Pete already uses birthday privileges. He took like a 30-second break off the show. So, Pete, it's all used up. Buddy. All right, switching gears to cyclicals. A big upgrade for Caterpillar today. They say the cycle is calling Cat's name and the path is clearing for this stock to outperform over the next 12 months. Stephanie, you own this one. As a matter of fact, your portfolio, just about 70% cyclicals. What's your take on this upgrade? You know, I agree with it because I obviously own it. It's a, it's lagged the overall market year to date. It doesn't trade in an egregious multiple at 20 times. But that earnings, I think, are kind of at the trough. I think that given what they've done in terms of making progress on margins, last quarter they beat operating margins by 300 basis points year over year. Revenues were constrained because of the supply issues. When the supply issues get fixed and you have that operating margin expansion, you get operating leverage. And I also think that they're not getting credit for their services focus and their sustainability focus. This is, this is a company that's going to become much less cyclical in the next three to five years. It's, gonna, it's not going to happen overnight, but I don't think that piece of it is, uh, is, is appreciated. And in the near term, they've got great visibility, 1.2 times book to bill in their most recent quarter with orders up 10%. They said they had the highest third quarter of new business in 10 years in their third quarter. So I think it's a great story for 2022 you get a good dividend yield. They're buying back a ton of stock. So I agree with the call. You know, RBC out with a note today is saying that enthusiasm for cyclicals as well as financials and energy is kind of fading right now. They're looking for leadership from large caps. But, Sarah, you're actually adding to your cyclical exposure. I am. Uh, you know, I, I think you want to be in a place that you can have earnings growth. And, and you want to be in industrials and cyclicals, especially as we kind of go back, you know, go forward into, into uh, next year. Uh, so much of the focus has been kind of stay at home, and, and, and we're really playing the view that things are going to start opening up, and you want to be in the industrials and cyclicals uh, areas that are going to do well. All right, Joe, you saved me on Pfizer earlier. I got a question for you this time around. With Build Back Better looking murky, let's just say that, does that hurt the narrative for industrials and other cyclicals? I, I don't think so. I mean, a name that I'll mention would be Nucor. Uh, again, we, we own it in the index, uh, performing well. I think that'll, uh, that works as you move forward. And, Frank, I have to tell you, I'm not necessarily sure that Build Back Better is, is completely over with. Uh, I suspect in January there'll be some renewed conversations that the market will have to uh, absorb and digest. All right. Uh, I want to swing back over. We gotta, we're going to talk about GM. Pete, we're going to get to you in a second. But first, Surat, your take on GM. So stock's down, you know, 13%, while the market's down, you know, 1%. And, and in a sell-off of a company, I'll go back to, hey, this is a supply issue. Supply issue. They've got strong demand for their products. They're placed really well in the EV space. They've got a very solid balance sheet. They trade at, you know, one-third the market multiple. And I think that, you know, the, there's no credit here for this company. So when it comes off 13%, I'm going to add more to it because this is a, you know, long-term hold for me. So, right, one quick question for you. Um, Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley recently put out a price target for GM of $75. He said of that, 52 was for their EV business. When you say strong demand for your products, do you see their gas power products continuing to see strong demand even as they grow their EV business? I do. And I, th I think that's where some of the investors, you know, or, or short-term investors are not looking or traders not looking because the EV business is there. 
uh, definitely, but they also have, you know, th their trucking, their trucks business, the, the other businesses that they have, they can raise prices on this. They just can't produce enough of them. And they've started out with the Hummer and they're, you know, on the EV side. So I, I think there's enough there for them when, uh, until the EV business pricks up that they're not getting credit for. All right. Pete, birthday boy, I'll give you one last word on GM today. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you this. So uh, what I think happened with GM also was it accelerated so much and so fast to the upside that it actually had to catch up a little bit, Frank. It actually got up and over 60 on a couple of different occasions. And then it's paused back now, and here we are trading about 55. Today, actually, we had some monstrous call buying in there where they were going all the way out to June, and they're buying the June 65 strike calls. Bought about 12,000 of those calls, and they're hedging that, Frank, against the 80 strike calls. So basically saying, you know what, we don't think it's going past 80. But we certainly like what we're, do what we're able to do and leverage this thing. So they're buying those 65, selling those 80s, and it's only costing for uh, about $2 for that trade. Pretty smart trade, and they're getting the time because they're going all the way out to June. I think that made a lot of sense. I bought those calls, as a matter of fact, today because I do like GM. I didn't like it at 60. I felt like it ran too fast. But on this kind of minor pullback back to 55, I think seeing these options definitely got my attention, especially because they're buying so much time. All right, check out this. This should get your attention right now. It's our mystery chart. It's a retailer whose shares have dipped over 20% in the last month. It's a stock that just got an upgrade and a call for a 22% rise from here. The committee debates it coming up next. Halftime, back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The U.K. is reporting today more than 106,000 new COVID cases. That is the most in a single day since the pandemic began. And a new study from Scotland suggests that the risk of hospitalization from the Omicron variant is two-thirds lower than with Delta, although scientists warn the rapid spread of Omicron still poses a threat to health systems already strained by Delta cases. Amazon, meantime, says that it is going back to requiring all of its warehouse workers to wear a mask. Amazon had most recently mandated mask wearing only for unvaccinated workers and warehouses in high-risk areas. And tonight on the news, more new COVID restrictions and developing new treatments. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And on a lighter note, and in Altoona, Wisconsin, five women are celebrating their 100th birthdays together. The party happening at a senior center where they are known as the Five Queens. Their secrets to a long life, 
find happiness, good friends, and the occasional cocktail. Can't argue with that. Frank, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, very solid advice from some people that have a long track record of success. Thanks a lot, Raul. <laughs> All right, time now for our call of the day, and it is Williams & Sonoma. Upgraded to buy at Loop Capital, the firm maintaining its $205 price target, which would be a 22% upside from here. Loop says the home furnishings company is the premier multi-brand omni-channel retailer. Pete, you previously owned it. Yeah, I did. Back in July, we had some unusual options in there. I decided to buy the stock. I liked what we were seeing, Frank, and and I got very, very lucky. Uh, I mean, uh, honestly, it was the unusual options that actually tipped me off. I started looking into it. I actually pitched this stock on that 5 o'clock show with Mel. And I'll tell you, it's absolutely amazing what this CEO has been able to do. Laura Albert has done an absolutely amazing job. She turned them into an e-tailer, as they call it. 70% is now online as far as the sales go. It got up to 50% very rapidly, now 70%. You look at the balance sheet, it's phenomenal. There is a pretty decent short in there as well, which sometimes can actually work for the bulls in a positive way as those shorts start to get a little nervous and they have to start buying and that actually compress the stock up. But the stock was 155 back in July. It got all the way up over 200 in November. Those were the, that was exactly where they were buying those calls. They were buying the November 170 calls when they were buying them. That gave me the, uh, the reason to why I exited. I should have bought them just the other day on Monday. This is a stock that got all the way back down to 160 and an opportunity was there. I didn't jump on it. So I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit. Maybe we'll get another one if we see some sell-off, but this is an unbelievable company. CEO has done an amazing job. When you, when you look at a company that's up 800% since she took over, I think that's a pretty extraordinary number. So um, I think this is a stock that definitely can go a lot higher. And I think 200 is very, very reasonable. Joe, you look like a, a fancy pasta strainer kind of guy. Tell me if I'm wrong, but you look like somebody that would buy one. Are you in here on Williams and Sonoma? <laughs> Uh, you're getting a stock on a 23% discount for all the fundamentally solid reasons that Pete cited. Uh, back in uh, November, Wells Fargo put out a report after earnings talking about a much-needed valuation reset, but also citing the strength of its free cash flow generation, the strength of its margins, uh, and the ability to absorb some of the pressures that might come from rising advertising costs and wage costs. Well, that's exactly what has happened here over the last five weeks. So why not take advantage of the 23% discount and enter into uh, a retail name that clearly is qualitative and has the strength of a phenomenal balance sheet? So, Steph, you're playing housing with TJX and Stanley Black & Decker. Do you see the same value proposition when you look at a Williams-Sonoma, which is obviously higher-end goods for the home? Yeah, I mean, Williams-Sonoma is a great, great company, and they do have four different concepts, and the free cash flow that both Pete and Joe mentioned, really very impressive. Um, the problem that I have with it is it's up a lot. It's up 67% year to date. So I think a lot of this is already known and factored into the stock. Uh, I'll give you that at 12 times earnings, it's cheap. But relative to its historical range of 14 times, it's not super cheap. So TJ to me is so underappreciated. Um, it's like up 3% for the year. Um, you have the, the treasure hunt with Marmax, but you also have home goods and home sense that I think is very underappreciated. Remember, same store sales for home goods and home sense were up 16% last quarter alone. So as the stores reopen, and we got to watch Omicron, but as the stores reopen, I think you'll see better traffic, ticket, and pricing power. Stanley, 70% of their business is tools. 30% of that 70% is Home Depot and Lowe's. And so they're on fire. And this is also a company that hasn't done, a stock that hasn't done much year to date. So, and I think they have 
very good control in terms of their costs. And I think you're also at trough earnings. I think margins are bottoming. And so I'd rather play those two laggards than the winner in Williams-Sonoma. All right, much more to come here on Halftime. Stay with us. Pete's latest trades and unusual activity are up next. And before the break, a quick check on the markets. The Dow and the S&P are both at session highs. Halftime, back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, time now for unusual activity, the birthday edition. Pete, what are you saying? <laughs> I got an extra one for you today, as a matter of fact, Frank. So we're going to start off with Alcoa. Now, Alcoa is pretty interesting because then it has a great results from 2021. This is a stock that was $25. It's run all the way up to about $60. As a matter of fact, today, trading right around $58.20, we had a monstrous buyer of 10000 of the January 7th expiring 60 calls. So they bought those. They paid about $2.50, call it, for those options. That was interesting because they're rolling it up from the 58 calls that have already performed for them. They're taking that off, and they're going into the 60s. I got a second one for you, which is Microsoft. Microsoft seems to hit almost every couple of days, and it hit today. Stock was trading between 326, 329. I now look, just took a, a moment to look at it. It's trading a little over 330, but we saw some huge buying, but these expire tomorrow, Frank, so this is a very, very quick expiration cycle for these. December 23rd, that's tomorrow. They bought 13,000 of the 330 calls. They were only going for a little over a dollar, a dollar up to about a dollar 50 for those calls. The last one I've got for you is Carnival Cruise. Now this one has already hit three times in December. The first time they were buying this week's expiring 19 calls. Then they were expiring the 20 calls were the next buyer. Today, they're actually going out in time a little bit. They're going all the way out to April and they bought 9,800 of the April 20 five calls in CCL as it's trading right around $21 a share. So that that those options were a buck 35. What made that interesting is this is a very smart trade. I think they're selling the upside calls against it. Once again, limiting the upside, not saying it's going through 30, but buying those 25s and buying a little bit of time. Pretty interesting to see all three of these. And like I said earlier, it's interesting to see both the airlines and you see the cruise ships. You're also seeing hotels. All these reopens. We're seeing more and more and more of it on the unusual. All right, thanks a lot. Ask Halftime, that's coming up next. Send in your questions by video. We'll play it on air. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Halftime. The Investment Committee is answering your questions. First up, Steph, Chris is in Kansas City. He wants to know, Hewler Packard Enterprises has blown past his quarter estimate with very positive reports. It continues to meet or exceed its estimates for the last several quarters. Is it time to invest in HPE as a long-term investment? 
I like it very much and have been buying recently on the, any pullbacks we get. This is an enterprise IT spend recovery story. We have heard about this theme from Dell, from Cisco, from HPQ. We heard it from HPE. That's one of the reasons why I like it. But I also like the transition to cloud. They're doing a great job in terms of cost cuts and free cash flow. The CAGR is about 15 to 20 percent over the next three years. And they're buying back stock and they're actually their dividend actually at 3.1 percent. I think very attractive for a stock trading at eight times earnings. So, yes, I like the story and I think you can buy it. Yeah, just really quick, I actually spoke to the CEO of HPE last quarter, and he says the street needs to reconsider how they're looking at this company as they make that transition to a network yeah. as a service company because those uh, revenues are high margin and they're very durable, so just something to think about. All right, Joe, you're next up. Yeah. Vic in Long Beach, California writes, Hi, Joe, I'm in Joe T. What are your top picks these days? Well, well, first of all, thank you for the confidence and the strategy that has you invested there. Uh, it's an equal-weighted strategy, so the affection that uh, I might hold towards the holdings. It's 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 universal. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll highlight some of the names that we might not talk about frequently on the show. Back in January, we added Arista Networks, communication equipment ticker symbol A N E T. In July, we added Arete, PSA is the ticker symbol, public storage. And then more recently, at the end of October, we added Estee Lauder ticker symbol E L. So I'd like to sometimes highlight some of the names that we don't talk about freely, uh, frequently, and these would be three of uh, those types. All right, next over to you, Surat. Michael in California is asking, what are the advantages and the disadvantages of having international stocks in a portfolio? I'm looking into starting a position into Diageo. So I think international stocks uh, have a really good place in a diversified portfolio. You get exposure to different countries, and you get the company itself to allocate the capital where they want to be. Uh, we like Diageo. It's core holding for us. I think Diageo is a great, uh, great way to play reopening. They've done very well at stay at home, but as soon as more restaurants and bars open, and Diageo, their whole suite of products are very high end. If you think about Johnny Walker and you think about this, you know their their vodkas, and they are so diversified across the world. It's a great place to kind of start have a startup position. Stock's fairly valued, so I'd add more to it on a pullback, but it's definitely a core holding for the future. Yeah, big uh, uh, business in tequila as well with Casamigos. Also, lastly, Pete, Frank in exactly. Portland, my cousin Frank, he wants to know, does Pete still recommend Target after its recent decline? I do, but, um, you know, it is, it is interesting to see this stock. It was just trading 260, now we're underneath 220. So, um, obviously, the selling pressure has come in. I still look at all the fundamental side of the story and the news and everything else. I still think Target's a great buy. As a matter of fact, I'm reevaluating if I want to uh, take a look and see if I want to actually start adding some more again at these levels. I haven't done it yet. I'll make sure to let Patty and everybody know when I do, and we'll talk about it on air. All right. Now, check out this one. We have another mystery chart for you, falling about 20% in the last month. The stock was actually just named the top pick for 2022. Plus, Stephanie Link, you own it. We're going to debate the call. And if she's sticking with this one, that's next on Halftime. All right. Welcome back to Halftime. Markets in the green, up a half a percent across the board. All right. Shares of Coinbase dropping nearly 20% over the last month. But Oppenheimer is naming the crypto exchange a top pick for 2022 in a new note, citing the continued adoption of digital assets and retailers and institutions. Steph, you actually just bought Coinbase over a month ago. Still in? Yeah, yeah, and it hasn't acted well. It hasn't performed well, but I still like it a lot. It is a very small position. It's not anywhere near uh, about a 1% position for me. It's not going to get anywhere near higher than that because it is so volatile. But 
They are the largest, most secure crypto exchange. They have 56 million verified users. They have 11% market share. 90% of their revenues are fees. They've, they've held steady. Uh, the total addressable market right now is about $2.2 billion uh, by 2026. So there's a long runway to go. And I actually believe that companies are embracing this, uh, crypto in general. You can't ignore it, right? It's not just PayPal and Square and Tesla that have embraced it. It's also Coke and Starbucks and Visa and Expedia and Microsoft. And so to me, I think crypto is here to stay. The exchange is the way to play it, in my view. It's a little less volatile, but it's still volatile. Uh, but it also just trades at 21 times earnings. So I think it's very reasonable. So I'm going to stick with it. Again, it'll be like a 1% position in my portfolio, and uh, but, but it'll, it'll remain there. You're the Oppenheimer analyst that made that call. Actually coming up on Power and Lynch later today. Joe, I want to go over to you. One question I want to ask you ahead of time. Is it, uh, are you able to ignore the fact that they seem to be, Coinbase seems to be correlated with Bitcoin. Coinbase down 20% of the last month. Bitcoin down 13%. They just really seem to move together. Yeah, no, the, the correlation is present, and it's, it's hard to ignore that currently. <coughs> uh, it's a strong management team. Brian Armstrong, I think, is an excellent CEO. I think this is a company that ultimately, to Stephanie's point, will prove itself uh, to kind of break that correlation and be rewarded for the fundamentals that are in play for the company. Uh, currently, for me, interactive brokers is the way that I am playing the exposure to crypto, I think you're getting the, the, the buffet of, of risk assets that you're able to transact on in the entirety of that platform, including crypto. So a little less volatile, less little less highly correlated to where Bitcoin goes itself. Uh, and in the moment that we're in now, uh, to me, that seems to be a less risky play. All right, there we go. Well, final trades are coming up next on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, Steph, we want to hit one more of your moves. Shares down about 3% over the last week, but you're buying more meta. I am. Um, I just think it's a very attractive valuation for the growth that you're getting. It's 20 times earnings. It's 10 times EBITDA, 8 times sales, a big discount to Twitter and Snap. And it's growing about 30, 35%. Maybe long-term the growth is like more like 2025, but that's still pretty good risk-reward. They have their new disclosures that they're doing. I think they're going to give them a re-rating. And you've got a $50 billion buyback as support. So I like the name. All right, final trade. Stephanie, might as well just keep it rolling with you. Okay, Match Group. It's a reopened laggard. It's down 25% from its highs, and yet you're seeing record level of engagement. I think there's more to go. Only 25% of singles use online dating, and I think 2022 set up, sets up well in terms of revenues, EBITDA, M&A synergies, and the like. So I like that name for 2022. Surat? I like PayPal. Uh, it's down 50%. I think it's going to do well going into the end of the year and next quarter. I think it's been punished unfairly for trying to make a potential acquisition. And the payments group, it's, it's, it's a leader in the payments group. Joe T. We spoke a little bit about healthcare. Let's not forget about medical devices. One name you might look toward, Edwards Life Sciences. Birthday boy, last word. Yeah, re reopen is the story of the day, I think. MGM, they continue to buy calls. They were buying them a week ago when it was 40. They're buying them now with it at stock at 44, 45. All right, that's going to do it for halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Cannonball! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 